Lord, we come into your holy presence this evening, grateful that we have any right to stand before you and to call upon you as our Heavenly Father and to expect to be heard. We do not come offering to you any merit of our own or any accomplishment that is ours by which we could stand before you and to be heard. But we stand here only because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, which we claim as our own by faith. And we stand here by your promise. And thank you that you are gracious and merciful to us and receive us as your children and are willing to look upon us as your people and to be a God to us. We thank you for hearing our prayers for the sake of our mediator, Jesus Christ. And God, tonight we thank you for the new covenant that Jesus Christ has mediated for us. We thank you that we do stand with the realization of salvation as our own possession. And we do this because you have loved us with an everlasting love. We do pray that you would increase our love for you as we study that covenant, that you would increase our love for you as we study the work of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless our time together, that we might come to know you better, to know you more fully, and to serve you as the living God. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our only mediator. Amen. We're in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, and I'll begin our exposition at the 13th verse this evening. But again, I'd like to read for you the chapter up through, um, well, most of the chapter, what I plan to cover tonight, so that we'll, we might put it in context. This is um, a chapter just really laden with theology and theological implications. Um, a really beautiful chapter, one of the uh, most theologically jam-packed ones in all of Scripture, I'm sure. And we've already spent a few Bible studies on it, and tonight we're not going to finish it, but I hope we get through at least the um, major portion of it down through uh, verse 20 or so. If we do that much, then perhaps next uh, week we'll be able to finish the chapter and move on to the 10th. But for this evening, let's begin our reading at the first verse of Hebrews 9. Now, in the first covenant, even the first covenant, had ordinances of divine service and its sanctuary, a sanctuary of this world. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the first, wherein were the candle stand and the table and the showbread, which is called the holy place, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot holding the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it, cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. Now these things having been thus prepared, the priest go in continually into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the services. But into the second, the high priest alone, once in the year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people." The Holy Spirit, in this way signifying that the way into the holy place had not yet been made manifest, while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which is a figure for the time present, according to which are offered both gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect, being only with meats and drinks and diverse baptisms, carnal ordinances imposed until a time of reformation." But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, 
nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling them that have been defiled sanctify unto the cleanliness of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of a new covenant, that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they that have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a covenant, there must be of necessity brought in the death of him who made it. For a covenant is a force over dead bodies, for it does not avail while he that made it lives. Wherefore, even the first covenant was not dedicated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses unto all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded to you were. Moreover, the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry he sprinkled in like manner with blood. And according to the law, I may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And thus far, God's word. Someone tell me this evening what the author of Hebrews is trying to accomplish through the various theological treatises and discussions which we find in the book of Hebrews. How might you summarize the purpose of this book? That the New Testament is by far more superior than the Old. More superior by far. It's above the Old Covenant. Actually, the New Covenant, I think, is what we'd want to say, is superior to the Old Covenant. We see that in the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament prophets and the superiority of Christ over Moses, superiority of Christ over the angels, and on and on. We come to the ninth chapter, and what is the superiority of Christ pertaining to here? It's a continuation of what argument? He's showing the inferiority of the old covenant, specifically the old earthly tabernacle as compared to Christ entering into the new tabernacle not made of this creation. Very good. The ninth chapter develops the superiority of Christ's ministry within the heavenly tabernacle over against the earthly tabernacle of the old covenant. But that is actually a subsection of a broader argument having to do with the priesthood of Christ, which began before this. The priesthood of Christ is according to what model? Is he a Levitical priest? Joe? That's right. He's not a priest after the order of Aaron and Levi, but he is rather a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And there's a great deal of teaching in the Old Testament about Melchizedek that would have led up to this expectation and conclusion, correct? We, we see this over and over again in the Old Testament, the priesthood of Melchizedek. You're not biting. That's good. You shouldn't. Mike, how much do we know about Melchizedek from the Old Testament? We don't have a recording of his beginning or his end. We know that Abraham brought him tithes and offerings. Um, then there's one other reference in one of the 
most commonly cited psalms in the New Testament? Psalm, anybody? Tony? 110, Psalm 110. The promise of one who would come to rule and be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, we read that this last Lord's Day in our worship service, you may remember. So the author of Hebrews points to the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek in the Old Testament? Just if we can take a minute more. Pat? He was the king of Salem. That's right, Jerusalem. And also, what's his name? Melchizedek mean? That's not like you, Pat. King of righteousness. King of righteousness and king of peace. King of Salem, king of uh, righteousness, his name. But who was he, actually? Somebody identify him for me. We studied this at some length. We, I, I have taught you that I believe it was a Christophany, that Christ himself uh, at that period uh, appeared on earth as the king of Jerusalem, and that Abraham was actually offering tithes to Jesus in his pre-incarnate nature. Now, why did I say that? Obviously, it's not a popular opinion, but I said theologically it's hard to escape. What is said of Melchizedek that makes it hard to identify him with any human person? John? Without genealogy, that could simply mean we don't know anything about his genealogy, but he ministers according to the power of what kind of life? An endless life. He is an eternal figure, according to the author of Hebrews, and therefore... Um, he's not only a, a vague typology or a foreshadowing of Christ, he was Christ in his pre-incarnate nature, I believe. Well, now, the author of Hebrews says that the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek, is superior to that of Levi, and that leads him into a discussion of the New Covenant and then into a discussion of the tabernacle, as Brian has pointed out at the beginning of chapter 9, talks about that old tabernacle and all the details of it, looking ahead... <coughs> To the day and age of Jesus Christ. In verse 11 of chapter 9, then begins, but Christ, the but Christ is set in contrast to what's been said concerning the first covenant's tabernacle of service and priesthood. But Christ came a high priest of the good things to come. He came in terms of the age of realization, the good things to come, not just the age of anticipation, the foreshadows of old. And he ministered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And what tabernacle did Jesus perform his priestly service and intercession for us, Al? In heaven itself, before the very presence of God. The appropriateness of that, of course, is that the old covenant tabernacle was God's presence on earth. Uh, it typified God's presence on earth, the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. But that was only a model of the real presence of God in heaven. And so Jesus did not enter into the Holy of Holies on earth. He went past the shadow altogether and directly into the reality to heaven itself to minister before God. And then beyond this, the author says, he did not go with the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Real quickly, by way of review, why the blood of goats and calves? What is that a reference to? Different kinds of offerings in the Old Testament? Maryland. Exactly. The procedure on the Day of Atonement where there had to be the sacrifice of a calf or what we might call a bullock, a bull, 
and also the sacrifice of a goat. Whose sins were atoned for with the sacrifice of the bull? The high priest. And whose sins were then atoned for by the sacrifice of the goat? The people. So after the priest has gone in to make himself acceptable to God, then he comes back and sacrifices a goat and takes that blood to make the people acceptable to God. And this is what the author's thinking of when he says that Jesus didn't go on the Day of Atonement with the blood of goats and calves, but he took his own blood, entering in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus entered into the very presence of God in terms of his own self-sacrifice. He was a priest after the order of Melchizedek in the true eternal tabernacle of God and God's very presence, and there offered not the blood of some vicarious substitution, some animal. He offered his own blood in the place of that. But there's more. He didn't do it repeatedly. He did it once for all. He accomplished redemption, and it never has to be done again unlike the priest and the animal sacrifices of old. And then finally, we focused last week upon this expression, having obtained eternal redemption. When Jesus went as a high priest into the very presence of God with his own blood to make um, atonement, he went in as a covenantal representative. Do you remember that from our discussion last week? Therefore, he went in as a substitute for the sinner. And because Christ died as a substitutionary atonement, I argued that he can have died only for his people. Jesus cannot have ministered as a high priest and offered a substitutionary atonement or sacrifice for anyone except those who will be saved. Kind of rehearse that argument for me. I want to make sure we have that down. This is a very crucial point in New Testament theology. Why is it that Christ could operate as a high priest only for his people? Joe? Well, because Okay, so if Jesus died as the substitute for all men, as the Arminian teaches us, then all men must be forgiven because Christ represented them before God and his, and his sacrifice is acceptable. And we read John the 17th chapter where Jesus says that he prays for his people, but he does not pray for the world. It's often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Um, we should not be embarrassed by the Calvinistic doctrine of limited atonement. After all, the atonement that we proclaim based on God's word is not limited in its effect. It actually accomplishes all that God wants it to do. It actually saves people, but it's limited in its application because those, it's limited to those who are actually saved. Christ cannot offer a substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice for men and have the Father reject it. So if the price has been paid, those for whom it is paid are released. They are redeemed. They are set free. No more punishment. No more curse upon those for whom Jesus bore the curse. So what I'm saying is that the doctrine of the limited atonement is essential to the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which itself is the heart of the gospel. Give up the limited atonement, and logically you give up the gospel. Of course, our Arminian brothers don't realize that. They haven't thought clearly. They've been taught all sorts of strange metaphors that don't come from the Bible about salvation and how it's of a gift you have to receive it or else doesn't. You know, all of, the Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible talks about a high priest entering the very presence of God with his own blood as a representative of the sinner, and God accepts it. Okay, question. What a parallel idea and argument for um, prayers of the unbeliever not being heard be the fact that 
offers them back unto the Father. I'm not sure what you're asserting. That, that the prayers of an unbeliever are not heard because they don't have that high priest. That's right. If we, if we believe that Jesus did not die for those who will never receive him, for those who are predestined for hell, if he did not die on the cross for them, then their prayers are not mediated to the Father by him either because he is not their high priest. And it does, it does say it rather clearly in John 17, I do not pray for the world. I pray for them, the ones you have given me, but not for the world. Jesus did not go to the cross to die for those who would um, reject him and eternally abuse his name. He died for his people. As he said in John 10th chapter, I lay down my life for the sheep, not for the goats, for the sheep. And the reason I'm dwelling on this, I did last week and I am again in our review tonight, is because often we as Calvinists are made to feel embarrassed by that doctrine. You know, it's as though we have a chintzy view of salvation or some kind of harsh view of God. When as a matter of fact, the doctrine that we're teaching is the most blessed of all. It's the doctrine of substitution. It's the doctrine of actual salvation, not just hypothetical. It's the doctrine that takes all glory away from man and says it belongs entirely to God. I didn't actualize a potential redemption by believing in Jesus and therefore become the last link in the chain and so forth. Or as J. Gresham Machen put it so well, he said, the Arminian can have his um, atonement for the uh, faceless masses, as it were, that doesn't accomplish salvation for any individual. I much rather believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, and he knew me, and loved me, and accomplished the salvation that he intended to there. But the Arminian will say, and then we'll end our review with this, the Arminian will say, well, Jesus did not die and actually save anybody. He died to make salvation possible. Remember I told you Hebrews 9.12 is the double whammy against all Arminian views of redemption. Not only does it show it's Jesus Christ, the covenantal representative, dying as a substitute for his people, but it also shows that atonement was not made hypothetically or potentially. What does the verse say? That he obtained eternal redemption. That solidifies the argument right there. What Jesus did is he actually obtained salvation for his people. Yes, Penny. No, not at all. Because, you see, prayer accomplishes things. See, what, uh, what happens is that God not only predestines the end that will be accomplished, the final outcome, he predestines all the steps that lead up to that end. And one of the steps we believe as Bible-preaching Christians is prayer. One of the ways in which God accomplishes his will in this world is to have us pray for things, and then he answers that prayer. Now, it's always been a scandal to people who want to think in just what we call monistic terms, to reduce God to man's level, if you will. Everything is of the same um, kind rather than a creator-creature distinction. It's always been a scandal to that mindset. Well, if God has predestined things, why pray at all? Well, on the other hand, if you don't look at it that way, why pray at all? If God isn't in charge of everything that happens, why ask him to change things? He can't do anything about it either. So you see, you know, both approaches can lead to that kind of conclusion. So what we say is, what's the biblical doctrine of prayer? Is prayer used to twist God's arm? You know, okay, God's going to be forced to do things? 
or is prayer laid in as one of the means he's ordained by which he is glorified to accomplish those things that he's ordained. So I pray for the salvation of my next door neighbor, and that from beginning to end shows that God is the one who gets the glory, right? And he does hear that prayer, and he does answer that prayer. I may pray for the salvation of my next-door neighbor, and if that person's not been ordained to eternal life, then that person won't be saved. But the prayer still accomplishes something in that I learn to worshipfully submit to God and to say it is on the basis of your will, not on the basis of my desire or my trying to twist your arm or any good works that I might do. And there's that sinful tendency in all of us, even in, in your preacher, you know, and I know the theology well enough, but there's always that tendency in prayer to think, God, if, I'll, I'll just, if I pray hard enough and often enough, or if I, if, I'm, if I live a good enough life, then will you please give me the salvation of this loved one or the salvation of my neighbor or whatever it may be, or, or you know, whatever else we're praying for. But, of course, prayer should teach us to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So prayer accomplishes things even when we pray for things that don't come about. We learn to serve God and his kingdom rather than our own desires. After all, the Lord's Prayer begins what? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Okay, enough review. Verse 13 now, launching into the new section tonight. The author says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling them that have been defiled, sanctify into the cleanliness of the flesh, how much more? Shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Uh, Doug, you know a little bit of logic. Tell us, what kind of argument do we label this in philosophy? Verse 14 begins, how much more? An a fortiori, arguing from the lesser to the greater. If in the lesser case this was done, how much more in the greater case will something be accomplished? Verses 13 and 14 show the superiority of Christ's work because it went, and the pun is intended here, to the heart of the matter. The superiority of Christ's work because it purifies the very conscience of the sinner, not simply the outward flesh of the sinner. All of the purification rites of the Old Covenant could not touch the heart. They only made the person in a public, civil, and external way acceptable in the tabernacle. But hopefully you know that the, um, the sprinkling of the water with the ashes of the red heifer did not make a person acceptable before God. They made them acceptable in the tabernacle. We need to talk about that sprinkling of the ashes of the red heifer in a minute. But first, the sprinkling with the blood of goats and bulls. That refers to the Day of Atonement, as you've already reminded me, so I won't hesitate any further on that. A sin offering for the priest, the sacrifice of a bull, then a sin offering for the people, the sacrifice of a goat. But the author now brings in the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling them that have been defiled. Can anyone, besides... Pastor Curto, tell me what the ashes of the heifer was all about in the old covenant ceremonial system. We read about it in Numbers, the 19th chapter. We're not going to turn back and look at it, but if you want to do some homework, you'll look at Numbers 19. In the old covenant, if a person came into contact with a dead body, that person was defiled and could not enter the tabernacle, could not come and make sacrifice, and had to be separate from the people of God. That person was not holy, but defiled. Okay, we're dealing here in outward symbolism. 
When you touch a dead body, now why would the touching of a dead body defile you, do you think? If you, saw, if you saw someone laying in the road and you walked over to turn them over to find out if they're all right and they proved to be dead, you've touched a dead body and you may not enter the tabernacle. For a certain period of time, you must be cleansed before you're acceptable among the people of God. Why? Is that hygienic? Is it because you know, they were afraid that there might be some kind of disease or something? No, it was not hygienic. What was it? Symbolic. Symbolic of? Sin. Why would death remind us of sin? For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Death is the consequence of sin. And so death in the Old Covenant defiled was a reminder that sin had not been dealt with. Now how did God take away the defilement, the external civic defilement of the person who had touched a carcass, come into contact, accidentally or not? Oh, by the way, that law of the Old Covenant is, um, you need to understand that if you want to appreciate what Jesus says when he calls the uh, Pharisees whited sepulchers. You know what a whited sepulcher was? Well, a sepulcher obviously is where a dead body is. And the Jews, knowing that if you touched a dead body, that you'd be defiled, would whiten the sepulcher to make it real evident so people wouldn't accidentally bump into it. Okay, that's what a whited sepulcher was. In order to keep you from defiling yourself with a dead body, they would, they would paint white the sepulcher so it would be real obvious. And of course, Jesus, beautiful use of uh, metaphor, says you are whited sepulchers yourself. Outwardly you seem clean and pure, inwardly dead man's bones, defiled in the consequences of sin. But anyway, God took care of that defilement in the Old Testament by the sacrifice of a red heifer. What had to be true of the red heifer? Had to be blemished, I mean unblemished, and it had to be one that had never had a yoke put upon it. It had to be an untried, innocent, without blemish heifer. The heifer would be sacrificed and burned. Cedar wood and um, hyssop and so forth had to be added to it. And then the ashes would be mixed with water. And that water would be sprinkled then upon the person who had been defiled. And they would become, in a civic sense, clean. Now able to enter into the tabernacle, be among the people of God. That's the background of verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling them that have been defiled sanctify unto the cleanliness of the flesh. If the outward flesh is sanctified, then how much more, the author says in verse 14, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Six elements of argumentation here that the author brings out. First, the blood of Christ. Yes, I think that the author, in the same way that he's argued from other elements of Old Testament symbolism, the author is saying any Jew that is reflective and conscious of the Old Testament symbols um, should have understood this. He's not saying that this is some kind of secret gnosis that he has. He's saying that um, the Jews were taught this repeatedly. And he indicts them, you see, earlier, indicts them for not understanding. 
He's going to leave them without any excuse for not accepting Christ. It's kind of like if you read the Old Testament, same way Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of the Jews and you don't understand these things, Nicodemus? Where have you been? And the author of Hebrews is saying, and, it, and, it, and it's interesting, from our advantage in the new covenant with the Spirit of God enlightening us, we look at what the author of Hebrews says and we look at the Old Testament and we say, yeah, isn't it obvious? And yet in that day and age, the struggle between Jews and Christians shows that it was, spiritually it was a real problem there. The Jews had been so ingrained in their traditions and their own interpretations of the law that they missed the most obvious things. That's what sin does to people. It blinds them. Okay, the author says in verse 14 that Christ offered himself without blemish. The without blemish means without moral impurity, not that his body didn't have any bruises or... Uh, impurities in an external sense. He was the true sacrifice for men because he was the Lamb of God without blemish. Notice as well that he offered himself. I think the author wants us to pick up on the fact that he was not a passive animal. You know, the red heifer and the lamb and the calves and the goats that were sacrificed, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't show up at the tabernacle one morning and say, here, take me. Make me a vicarious sacrifice. No, they just, in a very dumb, involuntary way, were taken away to slaughter. But Jesus didn't die that way. Jesus offered himself. Notice the intensive aspect of that. He laid down his life. He voluntarily gave himself for our salvation. I'd like to have you look at some verses in this regard. Turn to John, the 10th chapter, verses 17 and 18. John 10 at the 17th verse. Therefore doth the Father love me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment received I from my Father. That's a fascinating aspect of the atonement. Do you remember that when Peter took out a sword in the garden to defend Jesus from being arrested and taken to the cross, Jesus says, don't you know I could call for a legion of angels to deliver me if I wanted, Peter? I don't need your help. I'm voluntarily going along with this. Do you remember how Jesus says in Luke's gospel, it's a turning point in terms of the narrative presentation of Luke, that he set his face to Jerusalem, knowing he would go to die. Don't ever let the worldly conception of Christ's life dominate your thinking. The world sees the life of Jesus as a project gone astray, gone awry, something fouled up, bad PR for Jesus. He didn't have the right political connections. He could have been a really good teacher and accomplished the reformation of the Jewish faith. He just didn't have the right kind of uh, style or something. And then, unfortunately, he dies a martyr. And we look at this as just, you know, poor Jesus ends up in circumstances beyond his control. Forget it. Jesus said, I'm going to die. I will lay down my life and no man will take it from me. I will lay it down. And again, to Peter, don't you know, I could be rescued any moment if I wanted, but I go willingly. And I hope that softens your hearts. But you remember, Jesus didn't end up there just like some dumb, involuntary animal ending up on the cross. Jesus knew that's where he was going, and he did it purposely, and he did it for you. He said, I have to die. 
That doesn't take away the human agony of it. Remember how the night before he died he prayed, Father, if there is a way, deliver me from this. Take this cup from me, but your will be done. Jesus willingly goes, offered himself. His passion was no accident. And then the author tells us he offered himself through the eternal spirit. There are two interpretations of this, one that is favored by a number of commentators I don't theologically prefer, and that's that this is a reference to the essential divine nature of Christ, that he, in the realm of spirit, offered himself in terms of his divine nature to God. The eternal spirit refers then to Christ's own spirit as God himself. God is the spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The spirit being referred to then is Christ's divine spirit by which he performs this ministry. Now, what this interpretation has going for it is that the author is talking about internal matters. And so it might be a reference to Jesus, not his physical body, but his internal divine spirit. Of course, the difficulty is it's a rather bloody sacrifice that's being referred to and the body is brought right back into the picture. So I don't find this interpretation acceptable. I think the author here is saying that Jesus, by means of the Holy Spirit, performed his high priestly ministry. And we'll see that there's Old Testament reason to prefer that interpretation. If you turn to Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles, and so forth. Beautiful prophecy of Isaiah, but I will put my spirit upon him. And then turn also in Isaiah to chapter 61, verse 1. Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord Jehovah is upon me, because Jehovah hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, and so forth and so on. I believe, therefore, that the author of Hebrews is referring to this aspect of Old Testament expectation, that the Messiah would operate with the full unction and power of the Holy Spirit and accomplish his redemptive work. Continuing in verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, the Holy Spirit, I believe, offered himself voluntarily, not accidentally, without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works. From dead works. You notice it does not cleanse your conscience from works. Cleanse your conscience from dead works. Chapter 6, verse 1. Wherefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ, let us press on unto perfection, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. The author of Hebrews takes it as one of the elementary ABCs of the Christian faith that we are to repent from dead works. Jesus dies to cleanse our conscience from dead works. I want to suggest that our works are considered dead in three ways. Maybe you can help me. In what way are the works of the sinner dead? John? Well, they do not accomplish eternal salvation, but accomplish rather what? The wrath of God seen in what? The death of the sinner. They're dead works because they're works that lead to death. Romans 6, 21 and 23. Let's turn back to Romans, Romans 6, verses 21 and 23. 
What fruit then had ye at that time in the things whereof we are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. So they are dead works because they are works that lead to death. But they're dead in other senses too. They're dead works because they proceed from somebody who is already what? Spiritually dead. dead. Spiritually dead. Turn to Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 1 to 5. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. Notice what the Bible teaches us. And you did he make alive when you were dead through your trespasses and sins, wherein you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the lust of the flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in his mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved." Dead people perform works that lead to death as the judgment of God. But they're, they're dead works in another sense. The works themselves are sterile. They're dead. They're not living works. They don't accomplish anything good. And so in Galatians 5, Paul speaks in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit of the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh, which are dead, sterile, spiritually valueless works. The author of Hebrews reminds us then that when Christ died for us and through the ministry enabled by the Holy Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he cleansed our consciences from the works of our spiritual deadness that would lead to the judgmental death of God because they are sterile and valueless in his sight. And what was the end that Jesus performed this ministry? Why did he do this? What was the outcome? In order that we might do what? Serve the living God. I'll tell you, there's a whole month worth of sermons right in that expression, isn't it? Why was God, why did God make man? That we might serve him and worship him. That we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. But man cannot do that because he's dead spiritually and performs sterile works that lead to the judgmental um, curse of death upon us. But now that Christ has entered into the very presence of God without blemish to offer his blood to cleanse our consciences, we are set free to do what? Does it not offend you, my Christian brothers and sisters, that there are others who tell us Jesus set us free from our sins that we can do anything we want? Jesus set us free just so we'd have a ticket to heaven? Is that what the Christian life is all about? Escaping the consequences of our sin for eternity so that we can live like hell on earth? No, the author says that those who have been redeemed by Christ will serve the living God. That line of thought, saved by God's grace so that we might obey him, is found in Ephesians, the second chapter as well, verses 8, 9, and 10. I trust you're familiar with that concept. Paul says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not dead works, now for good works, which God afore prepared that we should walk in them. God ahead of time laid it out that we should walk in good works because we are saved by grace. 
And so I like to put it this way to my students at school. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Makes all the difference in the world, the preposition that you use. We're not saved by good works. In the first place is there are no good works for those who are in the flesh. Isn't that right? The author of Hebrews says it right. The only works we perform are dead works, legalistic works, works that are not valuable inside of God. So no one is saved by good works. There are no good works. But beyond that, we aren't saved by our own effort. We are saved by grace. Because if we were saved by our own effort, we could take some of the credit. We might boast. We might say, well, you know, other people were not smart enough to become a Christian. Other people didn't live up to God's expectations. But I did. <laughs> oh, what a good boy am I. You know, the story of Tom Thumb, you know, pull out a plum. Paul says, forget it. You're not saved by any good works at all. And then people will say, okay, since uh, we're saved by grace, not by law works, not by any effort on our own, then we don't have to keep the law anymore. We don't have to do anything to please God. It's just a free ride to heaven, and therefore I can live any way I want. How insulting to God. You mean God set you free from sin that you might go out and sin some more? God redeemed you from the curse upon your disobedience just so you could feel good in disobeying? Forget it. God set you free from sin so that you would not only be free of its guilt, but also of its power. I am cleansed from the pollution of sin, the cleansing of my conscience, as well as from the guilt and the consequences of my sin. And when I counsel people or speak with people who talk as though the guilt is taken away but the pollution may remain, my assumption is they are not born again. You cannot be born again if you just think Jesus has taken away the eternal consequence of sin. He's dealt with guilt, but he's not dealt with pollution. A person who is truly born again, this is a hard doctrine because in the Christian church people don't want to hear it, but those who do not hate and despise their sins do not know the redemption from guilt either. If the pollution is not being dealt with, the guilt hasn't been dealt with either. Jesus died to cleanse our conscience from dead works, that we might do what? Serve the living God. That's what we were made for, to serve God. And now we're able to do it for Christians. All right. Now we get to the heart of tonight's lesson. Please turn tape over at this time. I'm having a tough time with Hebrews. This chapter's just got so much. I would like to um, interpret verses 15 through 20, and this is a very controversial section theologically because some people say that the Bible here is talking about a testament, a last will and testament. Others would argue the Bible is here talking about a covenant. And why is there an argument? Because the Greek word diatheke, the Greek word can be translated either way. It can be translated covenant, it can be translated last will and testament. And what's the difference between the two? Someone tell me what a last will and testament is. common in our society. It isn't that hard. I would see you struggling with covenant, but last will. Okay, will it? A final ordering of your affairs, a disbursement of your material goods, or your heirs. Okay. A testament gives the instructions for inheritance when a person dies, right? Is that what a covenant is? 
Oh. And so you can see it's going to make a difference how we interpret this. The most common, by far, interpretation is that the author now shifts from the concept of a covenant in temporarily into the notion of a last will and testament, then he goes back to covenantal thinking. That he purposely uses the pun that you can find in the Greek word diatheke and plays on both sides of that meaning. I don't agree with that. I think that the author here is talking about a covenant and he keeps the covenantal conceptions throughout. And that's what I would like to argue this evening, but I don't think we're going to finish um, doing that. But let's launch into it and get as far as we can. Verse 15, having explained that Christ, um, in a way that is far better than the cleansing of the Old Testament rites, has cleansed our consciences to serve the living God, the author of Hebrews says, and for this cause, to that end, he is the mediator of a new covenant, that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they that have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Christ has become the mediator of the new covenant. Hopefully you remember the language of chapter 8, verse 6, where the author has already said, but now hath he obtained a ministry the more excellent by so much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted upon better promises. He hearkens back to that and he says, and so this is how Jesus became that mediator. In chapter 7, verse 22, he has said, By so much also has Jesus become the surety of a better covenant. Christ is related to that better covenant, the new covenant, as both its surety and its mediator. And as the mediator of a new covenant, what blessing does he bring, according to verse 15? There's two. Read the verse for yourself and tell me what two basic blessings have been brought to us in the new covenant. Mark? Um, <clears throat> blessings in the new covenant, well, uh, get grace and um, salvation. Well, what, what's the language of verse 15? He has done what? Brian? Uh, redemption and inheritance. Thank you, exactly right. Redemption on the one hand, inheritance on the other. For this cause, he's the mediator of a new covenant that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant. They that have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Redemption and inheritance. Two uh, concepts which are uh, just very rich in terms of biblical background. Redemption, being set free from sin. Liberated from the consequences and the bondage of sin. Christ did that for us. But he not only set us free from sin, he bestowed something upon us. He brought us the inheritance. And I'd like to talk about inheritance for a moment. In the Old Covenant, God appeared to Abraham and promised him an inheritance, didn't he? God said, I will make you the father of many nations and I will give you a land. It's just because Abraham was promised that, that when the Jews were in bondage in Egypt, that the book of Exodus opens with the reminder that God remembered the promise made to Abraham. He had pity upon those slave people. And of course, you know the story. He set them free. Redemption for the purpose of what? That they might gain the inheritance. See, The author of Hebrews has got a lot of Old Testament theology that he packs into 
these expressions. You need to see that connection's not fortuitous. Set free from bondage that we might now inherit. But, you know, the problem with the dispensationalists is they see the Abrahamic promise and they see the Jews going into the land, and they think that that Old Testament inheritance of Palestine is what God had in mind all along. A very shallow and mistaken reading. Abraham knew better. Abraham knew that Palestine wasn't what God was talking about. Palestine was just, if you will, a halfway house, a momentary installment, a, um, a small picture of the bigger reality that was coming, a microcosm of the true blessing and promise that he would make. What was Palestine a picture of? Palestine was just one area of the world in contrast to the whole world. But it was a picture of what within the world? The kingdom of God. The promise was made that God would have a kingdom. Now, did God ever intend for Palestine alone to be his dwelling place? Was God going to be king only in Palestine? No. His people were to be a light to the Gentiles, right? Psalm 2, he grants to his son that he will have dominion. What? To earth's remotest ends. From the river to the ends of the earth. And this will be his inheritance, it says in Psalm 2. Interestingly. In Romans, the fourth chapter, Paul, this is just a momentary theological slip-up, Paul says that the promise was made to Abraham that he would inherit the world. You don't read that in the Old Testament. But if you understand the Old Testament context, Palestine was just part for whole. Palestine, the inheritance, was a reference to the whole world becoming the kingdom of God. And in Hebrews 11, we're going to finally see that Abraham, having been given this promise, looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He looked for an eternal city. Abraham knew that even this world was not enough, that the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal kingdom of God, is what was being promised. And so it's kind of like you have one little box that's in another box that's in another box. And the little box is Palestine. But lo and behold, Palestine stood for the whole world, which stood for the whole world being the kingdom of God, which actually stood for the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom of God for all eternity. When Jesus went in and provided redemptive release for us, he secured the promise of that eternal inheritance. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter plays on the same theme. Well, let's turn to 1 Peter real quickly. I want you to see this in verse 4. I'm going to read the entire opening of 1 Peter just so you see the association of concepts in this apostle's mind being very similar to those we've seen already in Hebrews. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect who are sojourners of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy begat us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, unto an inheritance. The same word used in the Old Testament for the promised land, for Palestine, where every family received their plot and their inheritance. Jesus was raised from the dead to give us an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. So you see, we, we could spend a long time on this. This is part of the biblical imagery from cover to cover of the Bible. God has promised redemptive release 
for his people, that they might not simply be set free and on their own, but that they might be placed within his kingdom. And he gives them an inheritance. Jesus did both of those things for us. He redeemed us, and he gave us an inheritance. And then verses 15 to 20 witnesses to the realization in the new covenant of relief from the curses of the old covenant. The covenant that was instituted under Abraham and mediated through Moses to Israel. The curses of that covenant have been relieved in the new covenant. And the author will show us that by pointing to the connection between the covenant and the death of Jesus. And that's the theme here. We're going to have to come back to it and we can pursue it further. But if we can just take a little baby step right now before closing. Verse 15 says, For this cause he is the mediator of a new covenant, that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they that have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Is he talking about a last will and testament, or is he talking about a covenant? Well, in context, the Mosaic administration is being referred to, the tabernacle and priesthood. And you remember, God did not make a last will and testament with Moses. He made a covenant with Moses. And in verse 15 of our passage, the author speaks of transgressions that were under the first covenant. Earlier in the verse, he has spoken of the new covenant. If we take the testamentary interpretation, we'd have to say that we have a new testament. You say, oh, we do have a new testament, but that's by a misnomer, unfortunately. We have a new testament and a first testament. The only problem is there never was a first testament. God never gave a last will and testament to the Jews. But we know that he dealt with Moses and instituted a covenant. Exodus 24, the blood of the covenant. And so already we should be inclined toward the covenantal translation of that Greek word. Verse 15 says that death took place for redemption from transgressions committed against the diatheke, against the covenant or last will and testament well it makes no sense does it to say that there are sins against a last will and testament for which death redeems you Christ's blood was shed to inaugurate a new covenant and redeem us from the curse of the old covenant um, he did not die so that sins against the last will and testament would be forgiven what is a sin against the last will and testament? I suppose it's a failure to follow the instructions of the person who dies. But the person who dies does not die for the sins against his last will and testament. Well, let me tell you something very precious. The mediator of the covenant died because the sins against the covenant should have been borne by the covenant breaker, and instead they've been borne by the covenant maker. And that's what the author is going to be pushing here. That Jesus died as the mediator of the covenant, the maker of the covenant, whose death is represented in the inauguration, is not guilty of anything, but he dies anyway for the sake of those who have broken the covenant. Yes?
Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I was hoping that a half hour ago I would have gotten to this place as I have about three pages of notes to deal exactly with the problem that you've brought up. The problem is this, that the verses do go on to sound like someone dies and then an inheritance is given on the basis of that. And it's not enforced without the death of the testator. All right? And this is why many people have preferred that interpretation. But as there are going to be overwhelming linguistic and theological reasons why, and one of which I've already presented, it makes no sense to speak of transgressions against the last will and testament for which the testator dies. Uh, in context, covenant is the concept. But then we're going to study more deeply the notion of a covenant. And, and although my time is up, let me real briefly explain. Covenants are instituted with a symbolic representation of the covenant maker dying. In the case of Abraham, God makes covenant, and Abraham is told to take all these animals and to sacrifice them and then to split them in two. And God walks between the, the pieces of the animals as a self-maledictory oath. God says, let this happen to me if I don't keep my word to you, to Abraham. So the death of the testator is not necessary. The death of the covenant maker is brought in in the institution or inauguration of a covenant where the promiser says, if I don't live up to my word, may death come upon me. And so a covenant is not in force except over dead bodies. And that's true in the Abrahamic and in the Mosaic covenants. The covenant made through Moses required the sprinkling of the blood of the covenant representing the death of the person who makes the covenant and then also the judgmental death of those who break it. And so that's why the author of Hebrews is able to bring death and covenant together in, in a way which has unfortunately led many people to think, well, this must be a last will and testament. That arises from an insufficient understanding of covenantal imagery of the Old Testament plus an unfortunate translation of a Greek expression, and you're just going to have to trust me and the others in, in the audience who know Greek. Um, it says in, in many translations, you know, that uh, covenant's not enforced without death. The expression in Greek is uh, upon dead bodies. And I'll, I'll just go to the heart of one of the best arguments for the position I'm taking here. Dead bodies, why plural? Upon actually can mean over, a covenant is not in force except over dead bodies. The expression in Greek is over dead bodies. Now, if that's the dead body of the testator, why is it plural? You don't have to have many people die for a last will and testament to be enacted. Only the testator has to die. But it's conspicuously plural here. I suggest it's over the dead bodies of those animals that have been separated in terms of the Abrahamic procedure of inaugurating the covenant. And so we can make better sense of the, of the passage, the Greek as well as the Old Testament theology, by keeping it covenant throughout. And Laurie, I'd add one more thing. If testament is to be the translation in verses 16 and 17, it's the only place in the entire New Testament. There are 31 other references in the New Testament. And throughout the Septuagint, the only place in the entire Bible, Greek translation of the Old Testament and Greek of the New, the only place where diatheke is translated testament, and it appears wedged between verses where it's obvious that it's covenant before and after. 
And I'm saying that is so unlikely that it's really too bad the commentators have fallen into that trap. And what they'll say is the author purposely is playing on both ideas and he goes back and forth. Well, the concepts are so diverse that I think that would only confuse the reader. Uh, I do have a few other arguments, but that's the gist of what you'll hear next week. Don't, you, you better come next week. If I've <laughs> given away my punchline and you're not here next week, I'll, I'll feel really bad about that. And uh, let's close with a word of prayer, and we'll take a two- or three-minute break and then come back for our prayer meeting. Lord, we do thank you that you would become a mediator of the new covenant, a covenant made with better promises, that you have done so for our sake, and you were willing to do so even though it involved your own death, and that you voluntarily laid down your life in our behalf, that we might be set free from sin and might gain the inheritance that has been the hope and prospect of your people from the very beginning. We thank you for that love. We pray that you would put within our hearts by your eternal spirit an undying love for you that would be willing to go even to the point of death to be faithful. Lord, we do pray that the lives that we have been given would be sanctified to your service, that having our consciences cleansed from the dead works that would weigh us down to hell if they had not been taken away, that having our consciences cleansed, we might now serve the living God. Give us joy in doing that, and know that it is the greatest end and purpose of human life that we would be your servants, not just now, but forever. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.